Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 36. I'm Jamie Berger. This is a 15 Minutes mini with Jessica Abel. Jessica Abel is an acclaimed graphic novelist, professor, and now motivational writer and workshop leader who helped me get this podcast started a year ago and was the guest on episode 16. She has a new book out that is based on the Creative Focus Workshop that really helped me get this started after a few years of procrastinating uh, last May. I took her workshop leading right up to episode one. And her new book is called Growing Gills, How to Find Creative Focus When You're Drowning in Your Daily Life. It is chock full of stuff that will help you get shit done. One concept that was really fundamental to my beginning the podcast, uh, besides her overall no-bullshit way of, of addressing getting stuff done and, and accepting that, that we are all flawed and, and only capable of doing so much that she, she suggests. But one thing that really uh, helped me a great deal was her defining and addressing the concept of idea debt. This piling up of unfinished creative ideas. I think most of you out there are nodding your heads for all the stories you've started or haven't finished or screenplays you've begun or scenes you've written or, or, or filmed and then not gone on uh, that over the years weigh you down so much it's really hard to start with something new or pick one thing to work on. And her creative focus workshop really helped a great deal with that. So check out Growing Gills and... To support that book, I asked her if she would come on and talk with me for a while, and she did, but we got into a very arcane discussion of self-publishing versus looking for a publisher that perhaps I'll use another time. For now, here is Jessica Abel reading from the introduction to her new book, Growing Gills. So another piece of the um, of my message is that utilizing your creativity and building creative work into your life is part of living a full life. And I absolutely do not um, come down saying everybody's got to make this their full-time job. I really think that it's a mistake to jump from I need to be creative to I need to make a job out of it immediately. Like it, you might, but there's a lot of steps in between, right? But this idea also of then I can't, because I can't make it my job or I can't make a living at it, I can't do it, I can't fit it in, I can't make time for it. That's when you really run into trouble, I think. And um, I think people get really depressed and they their lives get really screwed up because they're not respecting this part about themselves. Um, 
So I'm going to read a little story from the introduction of the book, illustrating how this played out in my own life. What ignoring your creative self gets you. I was in Muji the other day with my six-year-old, and you pitched a fit to get a long, skinny pad of paper with checkboxes on it. Not to draw on or play with, he wanted to make checklists. He's his mother's son. I always made checklists of things I wanted to do. I had them in sketchbooks, on shreds of paper tucked into novels, in the backs of school notebooks. I remember compiling a list of something like 200 underground bands I wanted to check out. And before internet music, this was not easy to achieve. I would make the lists, but I'd rarely check much off of much of anything off of them. People look at me today with a pile of graphic novels under my belt, a podcast, a blog, a full-time teaching department chair job, and say, yeah, that's all fine for you, Jessica. You're different. You're a natural at this organization, get things done, productivity stuff. But it's not true. That productivity was learned. I spent most of my youth walking around with a ringing, anxious tension occupying a major portion of my brain capacity at all times. It's true that I'm intense. That has always been the case, and it still is but I didn't have a focus for my intensity for a very long time. And if anything, that just made things worse. I remember the first time I ever saw punk rockers. It must have been about 1984, and I was a freshman at New High School in suburban Chicago. New at the time had two campuses, one for freshmen and one for upperclassmen. And one day I was visiting the upper school for an event, and these two girls were lolling around on a car hood outside in the sunshine. In my memory, they had blue mohawks, fishnets, plaid schoolgirl skirts, ripped t-shirts, safety pins, the works. Now, this was Winnetka, Illinois, one of the richest towns in America, so these girls were not exactly OG punkers. But at 14, I was fascinated. I was attracted to their punk look, and more than that, their punk attitude. So I changed schools the next day, and in my next school, I attached myself to the punk crowd. Gradually, I became a kind of modestly punk kid. I did spend my free time going to punk shows in Chicago, I wore a leather jacket, I saved up my money from my job as a hardware store clerk, very punk job, to buy comics and vinyl, vinyl records, records I'd play on that turntable I was definitely going to buy very soon. I drew all the time in a big black sketchbook. And at the same time, I didn't dye my hair much, I didn't pierce my nose with a safety pin, and I went to school every day. I got good grades. I didn't love much about school, but I felt deeply obliged not only to do the work, but to do it well. Every time I was given a choice between doing the arty punk thing or doing the square thing, I did the square thing. On the newspaper, I didn't do features, I did news. I took Latin, not Spanish. I never took an art class in high school. It never even occurred to me to take art. Art felt easy to me, it was fun. Fun meant it wasn't serious and I couldn't possibly be learning. How would anyone ever take me seriously if I devoted myself to art? I reserved my punkest, angriest rebellion for fighting myself against giving in to what drew me. I had a boulder-sized chip on my shoulder and something to prove. I would actually practice walking around looking mean so no one would talk to me. I'd walk into Mrs. Fields' cookies to buy an after-school snack, wearing a Walkman, often turned off, and the darkest sunglasses I could find, just to be rude. I was angry. And when it came time to go to college, well, I picked a top 10 liberal arts school in small town America. It was a great school, but culturally, it was just about the worst fit you could imagine. I arrived dressed in a rock tee with rolled up sleeves, giant hoop earrings, and bright red lipstick. Seemingly, everyone else I saw as I made my way to my dorm room wore a heather gray college t-shirts and pleated khaki shorts. From day one at my college, I was in a rage against everything about its dumpy Midwestern ways. Within about three months, I began the process of transferring. During this time, I got a letter from my father. My father typed his letters because his handwriting is so terrible. 
but it also did give his letters an air of distant command. He suggested that because I was so unhappy and was thinking of transferring, perhaps I should look at art school. What? First of all, whose dad suggests art school? Second of all, in retrospect, it wasn't a bad idea. I mean, I have spent my entire adult life as a cartoonist, as it turns out. But my gut reaction at the time was fury. I was like, I'm fucking smart dad. I'm not going to fucking art school. I felt it meant he thought I was unserious, which in all fairness probably played into it. My actual reply, I'm going to the University of Chicago. Try and call me unserious now, dad. I transferred and signed up for Chinese and astrophysics my first year. Astrophysics was a giant anonymous lecture class. And by the way, it sounds cool, but it turns out to basically be physics. Chinese was five days a week at 8 a.m., the end of my second quarter, my Chinese teacher pulled me into his office, and this was not a warm, caring guy, but he was concerned that as an East Asian studies major, I really could not afford to fail this class, which I was in the process of doing. And I told him, no, 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 I was an English major. He was so impressed by my cojones for simply attempting to take Chinese that he gave me a C. It was as if I thought, by completely ignoring what made me happy and plunging into some of the hardest academic stuff I'd ever faced, I would finally, once and for all, prove myself prove something to myself and to the world, and I did. I proved that I was completely capable of making myself miserable for no earthly reason. None of this story is directly about productivity. I was not productive, that is the truth, but more important, I was deeply unhappy, and I believe those two facts are intimately inter intertwined. I felt disempowered and wanted to gain respect and power through achievement. I did not see how feeling empowered could possibly be connected to anything that felt easy and joyful, like making art. I was not productive because I wouldn't let myself care about my creative work. I also wouldn't let myself care about my academic work beyond performing to expectations, and it showed. I tried to tamp down and ignore my creative impulses, which put me into a kind of zombie-like state of half-living. It was a vicious cycle. I couldn't afford to look directly at my loves because they were tied tightly to my fears, so I didn't really look at anything and instead procrastinated like a champ. Procrastinating amped up the guilt and fears and made it even harder to focus on the work. And around we go again. As a junior in college, I had some dry cleaning to pick up that I let sit there for probably six months. I might never have gotten it, I don't remember. The dry cleaner was in my building. That is what living in a state of denial about what you truly care about will do to you. You got to live in a way you can live with. Amen to that. You can find more about Jessica Abel Growing Gills and the workshops she runs, the Creative Focus Workshop, among others, by going to jessicaable.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L.com. You can find out more about this show at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Next up, we will have the Year in Review Therapy session with Dr. Lois Parkinson, resident shrink, as she said to put it. And then after that, first episode in June 2017 will be my conversation with David Sedaris. This has been a 15 minutes mini, as ever, engineered by Ed Patnode. I'm Jamie Berger.